All right, welcome to Bubba the Hunter, episode four. Brian, how's it going today? Episode four, here we are. Yeah, we're three down and uh, three in a bag and working on the fourth, right? Yeah, I can tell you, it's some uh, good stuff, fun, fun times going through, uh, putting these podcasts together, getting some uh, good listener feedback. Uh, I've got a couple uh, a couple listener messages left. Right, and then uh, some shout-outs overseas too, right? Where was uh, some of our listeners from? Yeah, we still had some downloads in uh, Germany. Germany. And uh, yeah, we covered a number of other states. I didn't write these states down. We're starting to really cover them some some out in Idaho, uh, Wyoming, some downloads. So yeah, we got uh, hitting some states for sure. I follow a fellow on Instagram from Germany who hunts roe bucks, roe deer, R-O-E. I think it's R-O-E. Um, and in my past life, so roe deer, uh, at, we actually at QDMA, in, we had a library. And in our library, we had a, uh, a past member who was deceased but had a collection of roe buck antlers and he donated them to us and they adorned our library so uh, at every that's where we held our meetings and our conferences and such was in our our library and was uh, the walls were adorned with uh roe buck antlers so they're really small antlers like um basically like a what we would call in pennsylvania like a little forky you know um so the, the antlers would come straight up and then Y and then maybe like little brow tines. So six points, four points, spikes, but that, that was a roebuck. And um, I follow a fellow from in, uh, from Germany on Instagram and, and uh, he's all the time laying down some roe deer. So hopefully our uh, German listeners are roe deer hunters. Yeah, that's smaller cool. deer. Yeah. Is that kind of like a sicket deer? Uh. Yeah, sort of, maybe. Oh. They don't, they're not spotted, though. Um, okay. I'm not exactly sure of the, uh, but they're de- they're definitely not spotted. They're smaller. Um, there's a lot of different subspecies of deer, so uh, you know what? I should probably, maybe we'll bring that back up, or maybe one of our German people will call the number and tell us all about the roe deer, but that would be pretty cool. Oh, yeah, certainly. I always need to uh, learn some more, more uh, deer species out there, for sure. Right. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So along those lines, uh, you know, we're Bubba listeners out there, remember to give us your feedback, your thoughts, ideas, things you might want to hear. Maybe we'll, like Ryan said last time, maybe we'll put it on, maybe we won't. Uh, we got an email, Bubba at BubbaTheHunter.com. And hey, you can always call the Bubba hotline, the Bubba hotline, 812 and we'll definitely put that in the details of the episode so you don't have to remember that. But, yeah, hey, we got the Bubba Hotline now. And, in fact, we got uh, we got two recordings on the Bubba Hotline already, Ryan. So that's, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's probably the number that people are going to give out now when they have to, like, sign up for some random <laughs> email thing. Right. We're going to start – we're going to be getting, like, your car warranty is about to expire. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. The car warranty places, they find every number and yeah. call it, track that down for sure. <laughs> so, so yeah, definitely uh, the Bubba hotline. So, uh, hey, give us your feedback on it. I'd love to get more of those, more entertaining ones or some good old questions, you know, so we can definitely put those out there. Right. So, uh, in fact, so I think the most recent one we got, Ryan, is uh, Bubba from West Virginia called in. So uh, we can uh, we, we'll, let's play that one, and uh, we'll, we'll see what Bubba from West Virginia has to say. I think it might be a little entertaining session here from Bubba from West Virginia. 
Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Mama, this is Papa. We got the same name or something. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, I'm over here in West Virginia. I'm wondering what the hunt. It's not beer season. It's not fishing season. What season is it? How am I supposed to put food on the table? I do what I can. Do what a man has to do. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, one baba to another. I hope you have a good one. Yeah! Time for some Bubba News. Bubba News. So, well, <clears throat> I mean, where to start? So, we'll stay with the deer thing. Well, you know what? Uh, the the last episode I was on a soapbox, so I'm going to try not to get on a soapbox on this episode. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No soapbox um, this episode. <laughs> the, the Great American Antler Boom. So we're talking about, and I was, I think it was episode two, maybe I was on a little bit of a tiny soapbox uh, with shed season, you know, in and amongst us. And I was kind of preaching, like, just give it some time before you start pushing deer around because they're in a very stressful point right now this time of year. Um, so we had an article shared with us, uh, about the great American antler boom and, you know, shed hunting is becoming more and more popular and especially in the Western States and even, well, you know, the Western States for mule deer and elk, uh, obviously, but, uh, you know, Pennsylvania has an elk herd, West Virginia has an elk herd, Kentucky has an elk herd. And I know in Pennsylvania alone, I know uh, a handful of people that uh, go up to Elk County and uh, look for elk shed antlers in and around there. And there's there's some competition up there. Um, but that's exactly what the Great American Antler Boom uh, talks about is, uh, you know, what's going on <laughs> in the world of shed antler hunting. Um, so... If you, if you, uh, I'm kind of mumbling a little bit here, but if you, if, cause I'm stumbling through the, uh, the story. Well, while you so, stumble through the, uh, the article there a little bit, Ryan, on Instagram, uh, we have a follower, Bubba the Hunter podcast on Instagram, uh, is Go Time Outdoors. And I tell you, they're in Wisconsin. And, uh, th- th- this couple that's been posting these pictures, they have, uh, been quite successful recently shed hunting the last couple weeks i've been following their feed they've been finding uh, anything from some small stuff to uh you know some nice nice things out there to find and they're just out there out in the outdoors too in wisconsin so uh yeah they've been posting a lot so there's a little shout out to is go time underscore outdoors on instagram you got some good stuff out there thanks for sharing yeah good so uh, this article, it's in the New Yorker, if you want to search it up. It's the Great American Antler Boom. And it basically just talks about how this is based out of Jackson Jackson Hole, uh, Wyoming, and the Teton County Fairgrounds. So on April 30th, 2021, the shed hunters began to arrive. And they basically, it's, it's, it's a hunting season. You know, they have, a, they have a start time. And, you know, they bring a, a truck and trailer full of horses, and, and they're, they're camping. They're hiking in, they're backpacking in, and they're just scrounging up these these big antlers. Um, you know, so it, it's there's a whole there's a whole world out there that I think a lot of the Bubba the hunters and even me don't realize that they what the antler market can bring. But there's a whole world out there uh, that will pay. You know, antlers fetch um, really nice antlers fetch a lot of money. Um, some of them are sold by the pound, actually. Um, 
man, it's just it's just crazy to think about, you know, some of the things that we, I guess, for a long time have taken for granted um, as far as being, I don't want to say a business, but a moneymaker. And now they are a moneymaker and it actually kind of rubs people the wrong way, right? Like, um, you know, there's, you have to have a start time. And then I know in certain uh, states in the West that because of what I was talking about earlier, it's putting an undue stress on the animals. So they're not even being hunted, but they're just being pushed around. Uh, again, the, the females are carrying young. The the bucks and the bulls are trying to reserve all the fat they can to, to survive the, the winter after the rut, et cetera, et cetera. So the state agencies have to manage this. Uh and, and these national parks have to manage it. Um, you know, so it's it's crazy to think something so simple becomes so complicated, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And you talk about the money-making aspect of it. Um, at pet stores, you can buy antlers for your, your dog to chew on for dog chews. Really? And I know they're crazy expensive. Yeah. Yep, at your liquor, pet smart places like that. Yeah, you can definitely spend some money on some antlers for your dogs to chew on. So there's definitely a money market there. Now, I didn't even think of that as a potential option until you mentioned that about how, uh, you know, being money out there for it. Yeah, so a lot of these people, I mean, uh, there there's a lot of auction houses that buy antlers and they send the antlers to Asia. Um, so, it's, you know, there there's a whole international export of antlers if you will um you know and there's a there i guess a lot a bunch of different uses for them in in asian countries and a lot of them come from our western states um so it's just amazing to see you know everything that uh that comes out of an antler for sure yeah, and the, and then this article in the New Yorker, I'm looking through it here, Ryan. It says there is a non-typical can be worth as much as a thousand dollars from a yeah. bull a bull antlers non-typical. Wow, yeah. several thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, so that's crazy. You know, I know, I know of a few people. I well, I, I have one friend in particular. Um, and not just antlers, but taxidermy and antlers. And he was a, wasn't a professional hunter. He was just a really good hunter. He's, 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 uh, in his early eighties now. And he had started bow hunting, you know, well, I don't know when he was in his late teens, I guess. And he traveled West and as he became uh, older and, you know, had some income, he, he traveled the world. So <clears throat> he didn't have any children. And, um, you know, he's getting up in, in age and his wife said to him, you know, what are you going to do with, you know, all this taxidermy, all these antlers, all these rugs, you know? And he's like, oh, wow, I never really thought of it. And I guess since you're asking, you know, you don't really want them. <laughs> and uh, she was like, no, I, you know, I, if something were to happen to you, I'd never be able to take care of them. So what he did, he had kind of like started taking down his collection and setting things aside and he gifted uh, some of it to, you know, his close friends. And uh, I happen to be one of them. I got a couple of gifts from him. I'm looking at one right now. And um, then the other ones he donated, right? So he's going to donate them to a, uh, a, a local university. And in order to donate them, he had to have an appraisal done on them. So unbeknownst to him. And when he was telling me, it was obviously, I mean, unbeknownst to me, I never knew anything existed like this, but there's people that specialize in appraising taxidermy 
antlers, taxidermy, you know, all sorts of rugs, you know, furs, what have you. And anyway, long story short, so he had to have, in order to donate it, it had to have a value assigned to it you know, for, I guess, for it to be legal, I guess. And his, the value of his taxidermy a lifetime of hunting was $4 million. Like, um, and, you know, he didn't spend near that much to have it mounted, but he used a quality taxidermist, a world-renowned taxidermist, did all of his work. He had African sables, kudu, uh, cape buffalo, uh, whitetails, uh, the grand slam of sheep, elk, mule deer, um, bears. Uh, I think one of the bears he had killed at the time was third. It was a, a black bear, but it was a, a phase, a color phase black bear. It was third in the world at the time when he killed it. So big, big trophy class animals, all with a bow and arrow. And uh, they appraised it $4 million. And, you know, wow. yeah, it really took him back. And then he was telling me the story. He's like, wow, you know, holy cow. But anyway, he ended up donating the biggest portion. Uh, and it's, it's actually pretty cool. Um, it, it's, uh, it's set up to where, like, elementary schools can kind of walk through an exhibit and push a button. And it'll tell you about the species and so forth. So, um, elementary schools take like local field trips there and such. So yeah, that's pretty cool. But there's a whole world out there that, you know, uh, it, you know, it's I'm, sometimes I wonder like, why, why am I not doing that for a living? Right. Like <laughs> for sure. Raising taxidermy. Yeah. You I was know? about to say Bubba don't care. That sound didn't sound like, a any sort of Bubba, uh, antlers there, stuff like that, all that stuff you were listening off. But wow, yeah, when you start talking that sort of money. Wow. Yeah. I actually know a couple other friends of mine that uh, have actually sold some antlers at auction uh, just uh, to almost supplement their um, retirement type of deal. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Never would have guessed that. No doubt. But there you go. How about it? Yeah. Talking about deer, we had the, the rare but very dangerous deer tick, which sounds great, right, for all the bubbas. Deer ticks out there are a pain in the butt again. Yeah, this is definitely a good topic for bubbas out there for sure. Anybody out in the woods in general. You know, this is crazy that this article here, basically rare but dangerous deer tick virus found at elevated levels in PA. Yeah. You know, in January, right. nonetheless. In January, right. So I used to know, so it was... You know, they used to say one out of every other tick basically had carried Lyme's disease, right? So, like, 50% of the ticks. Now, I'd like, I would bet that I spend more time in the woods than your average hunter. I mean, I, I just don't, I mean, I'm in the woods basically year round at some level, maybe not every day, but at least weekly, year round, doing something. And I've had ticks on me, but I've I've only had one embedded in my life that I can remember, and I think I got it fairly quickly. Um, so I, I, I always said I must have put off a certain scent, or they just didn't like to. There was something about me they didn't like to get. <laughs> but so my mom's had Lyme disease, my uncles had Lyme's disease, my nephews had Lyme disease. I mean, <clears throat> everybody around me has had Lyme's. Uh, so now they they've like the deer ticks have said, you know what, we're going to do a little better. Uh, we're going to up our game and um, this disease or I guess, is it a disease or a virus? It's kind of, uh, I, I don't know. It's kind of, yeah, I guess it's a virus in yeah. this particular. It's a virus uh, that I guess they call a disease. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, 
regardless it can affect people so differently yeah you know it can really really almost uh paralyze some people and then some people can get it and you get the the antibiotic and get it out of the system and it's gone yeah so this was in uh clearfield county pennsylvania and you know they they, in quotations unusually high infection rate more than 80 percent of the ticks sampled carried the deer tick virus at uh, Fisherman's Paradise Public Fishing Areas near Belfont and Center County. Um, it, it's so 80% of the, you know, now, and, you know, like you say, these people are getting sick. Some of them are uh, really, really sick. And then in January, DEP announced that the program had found an infection rate of 92%, the highest ever recorded anywhere in the country. Uh, and that's in the Lawrence Township site. So, the previous highest rate found at a single location of Pennsylvania was 11%, and the highest reported nationally in scientific literature was approximately 25%. Transmitted by black-legged ticks, also called deer ticks, DTV, so it's deer tick virus, is a type of, uh, I don't know how to say this word, Powassarin, P-O-W-A-S-S-A-N virus, which is rare in the U.S., but has been increasing in recent years. Uh, it can be transferred from tick to human within 15 minutes of a tick bite. So where the previous one was, you know, they said it had to be uh, <clears throat> 24 hours usually. That This is now 15 minutes. So God, that's, that's scary. crazy. Yeah, yeah, real scary. Encephalitis and meningitis and hospitalizations and death in about 12% of the people with a severe form of disease. So, you know, I'm obviously reading this. Uh, it just came across the radar here in the last couple of days. So, I'm not that well versed in it, but I would highly encourage every listener to go out there and seek it out. Seek this article out. Learn about the DTV, the deer tick virus infection. It can include in fever, headache, vomiting, and weakness. Um, some people who are infected uh, experience no symptoms, so they therefore they go undetected. But 91% of patients treated for DTV infections develop severe uh, neuroinvasive disease. Um, so yeah, you know, it's scary when we have kids and we're out there, we're shed hunting, we're going to be turkey hunting, we're going to be fishing, you know, buy your tick spray, your prolethermin, uh, spray your clothes, tuck your socks into your pant legs, uh, you know, wear high boots if you can, you know, long sleeves all the time and constantly be checking yourself, your exposed skin behind the ears, the armpits, you know, the crotch, it's like that country song, I want to check you for ticks. Like, yeah, take it serious <laughs> and check for ticks. For sure. Uh, especially these ones that uh, are transferring the deer tick virus within 15 minutes. That sounds pretty serious to me. And, uh, you know, trying not to scare people. We just want them to be aware that this is this is, uh, this is is going on out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you definitely, like you say, you need to use that, uh, that parathium. Is that how I can pronounce that stuff, uh, Ryan? That's... Uh, Permethathin. If you wouldn't have said I, it, I could say it. No, it's not I, rolling off the tongue. I, I, I done messed you up. <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. Yes. It starts yeah, with a P. Sure. And it, yeah, but make sure you spray down with that. Wow. So yeah, DTV has crazy. been detected in 15 Pennsylvania counties, uh, but outside of the three hotspots, location of infection rate. So in the other, the, there's three hotspots. The infection rate outside of that is uh, 0.06. So it sounds like it is a very contained area for some reason. Uh, but uh, that's, you know, the center of the state. There's a lot of traffic through there, especially in fishing season. Uh, that's also shed antler hunting areas for the elk that I just mentioned previously. 
So there's a lot of people that go through those counties. Um, so hopefully that, you know, the DEP is on it and trying to figure out why that it is extremely high in those three counties. And hopefully we learn more as the days and weeks go by. And as we do, we'll be sure to tell you guys. But uh, right now, like I said, this just kind of came across the radar here pretty quickly. But you can search it up, DTV, Deer Tick Virus in Pennsylvania. Read about it yourself. And it never hurts to spray down for sure. But stay safe out there. So, you know, I came across here and uh, for Bubba News topics, a fisherman in Arkansas potentially had a state record striped bass in the boat and then they put it back in. <laughs> yes. Like the picture says it all, right? Like, yeah. And you know what? I, I, I would, I could have easily have done that, right? Like I could see, I don't know. I mean, you know, unless you're up on current on the records and I'm not, you know, I don't, I mean, that's not why I go fishing or hunting at all. Um, and you know, when you're catching and releasing type of deal, it's like, Hey, I caught a big fish. So basically this guy <laughs> catches this ginormous fish. You can check the link out. Uh, we'll put, we'll post it probably, but, um, he catches this ginormous striped bass and he gets a couple really cool pictures of it in the boat, you know, like him posing, holding this big bass and he chunks it back in the water only to find out later, like some of the official people looking at the picture, like, Hey, where's that fish? Like, oh, I threw it back. Well, man, that kind of looked like might have been the state record. Like, you know, somebody that has the eye for that type of deal, you know, reached out to this guy apparently and said, man, I wish you wouldn't have threw that back. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's like, have you ever read those stories or those articles about the people who um, hit the lottery and don't know what they did with the ticket or don't even know that they had the lottery ticket? Oh, wow. That's a story you don't want to hear right there. Right. Ooh. Yeah, that happens. Oh, right? man. So I guess catching the state record striped bass isn't quite like that, but yeah, it's maybe, not quite like that. But maybe the bubble of the fisherman it is, right? You it want that be, thing yeah. on your wall. Right. Exactly. At least a citation. I wonder if yeah. they'll give him a citation was like, hey, we think you caught the state record. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and as the, the article goes, so he was actually fishing a uh, Phoenix Bass Fishing League tournament. So I can understand, you know, sometimes when you get in those tournaments, you need to be, you know, to keep up, you, you know, you basically, all right, throw that back. I can't, this doesn't count. I got to get the line back out in the water and, you know, get to it. Right. Uh, you know, you got to get, either get your limit or depending <clears throat> on how, how it was set up. I don't know how this particular tournament set up. If it's your typical Bassmaster five limit sort of tournament or like a major league fishing sort of thing where it's all about getting to a target weight and a time, you know, first. So, I could see his point there. You know, he, he grabbed two pitchers with it and then uh, threw the line back out in the water and get back into fishing this tournament. So, right. I mean, I can understand, but yeah, after the fact, like darn. Yeah, yeah. at least we got a couple pitchers with it, you know? Yeah. He made, he made Bubba the Hunter podcast here. We're talking about it. And uh, I don't know how uh, his name is Stephen Tyson Jr. I don't know. I hope he did well in the tournament. Hopefully he did and at least had a consolation prize. Right. And you know what? He's got a great story for the bar afterwards. Oh, for like, sure. You know, but speaking of, of and I, kind of a funny story um, with state record fish. So there was a state record walleye caught not far from my home here, just in uh, Connellsville, Pennsylvania. I want to say last fall in the river, in the Yakagani River. Um, state record walleye. So all these walleye fishermen up in Erie and everything. And I, you know, I'm, I go up there and the state record was caught in the river you know, right here 
uh, 10 miles from my house. But the and funny was, thing was I have a shore too, right? What's that? He caught that fishing from the shore too. Fishing from the shore. Yeah. Yep. And he ate it. Like they asked him, like, you know, he's like, oh, fry this baby up type of deal. And the interview was kind of funny. But so the other funny part was in a couple, maybe future guests on the the Bubba podcast. um, But I had two friends. One of mine is a a pretty good close friend of mine actually caught that same fish. Now, here's how he knows. Well, listen, he's not 100% sure, but he showed me the picture. He caught it four years ago. Um, so he's an, a, a, an avid walleye angler. He has a jet boat on the river. Um, he caught that fish in the same stretch of river four years ago. And I want to say, I, I'm, these numbers may be mixed up, but I want to say it was a pound and a half smaller, uh, than it was. So it gained like a pound and a half in four years. And I may be making that number up, but it certainly gained some weight, but it wasn't as much as I thought like, Oh wow, four years and I gained that much. But um, so he had the picture and coincidentally enough, it was like the way he was holding it was almost identical to way the, the new guy was holding it. And like all the markings were exactly the same. He was like, that's the fish. And he said, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not the only one that's caught that. He's another friend of mine, uh, has the mutual friend of ours. He said, his name happens to be Russell. He's like, Russell caught that fish too. He's like, I think actually Russell caught it more than once. Um, but they kept chunking it back, right? And then this guy caught it from the shore, you know, on a on a minnow type of deal, and was like, you know, hurry up and weigh and measure this thing because I got the butter in a frying pan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Get me my citation for the state record, and I'm eating this baby. Yeah, cooking uh, it up, nice. Yeah, I like that. You know, we need to get your buddy on there for on this episode. That would be awesome for him to talk about this fish. That yeah, he, he could talk yeah, about it. I'm that. sure he would. Yeah, oh, that'd be, but that'd uh, be great. He's got the pictures to go with it for sure. But that's a pretty cool story, you know. And that's the difference between obviously the difference between. I guess it's like trail cameras, but you know, a trail camera you get a picture of a big buck, and then when somebody kills it, it's almost like, well, I got a picture of that buck too, so I almost killed it. You know what I mean? And and uh. You know, maybe not along the same lines, but they caught it and were throwing it back. And then, you know, this guy four years later caught the state record. So, but it was, I did ask my friend, you know, I was kind of, it kind of caught my curiosity. Like, was it just like living in the same hole, like in the river? And he said, no, like, you know, they were the, the guys that he know that had caught that fish. uh, He said it was almost. I think he wanted, I think he told me it was about three quarters of a mile from where, you know, he knew for sure, maybe where he caught it to where somebody else caught it type of like it wasn't staying in the same spot. It was, it was moving around the river for sure. Oh, that's a story I got to hear. That sounds yeah, great. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Definitely bubble level there. Yeah, that's definitely bubble level. All right, Ryan. So we got a, another fish story out of the state of Florida here. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, this this bubba here was uh, cited by the Fish and Game Commission in Florida for having two thousand six hundred and eleven pompano. He he had over. He was he was. <laughs> so if 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 the limit. So how I'm reading this article. If the if the limit was was like one hundred. He had like uh, twenty six hundred and eleven more than one hundred. Like he, <laughs> it wasn't like he had three more. He had like two twenty five hundred more fish, twenty six hundred more fish, right, uh, yeah. over the allowable limit. So, you know, 
<laughs> well, that's crazy. So, so why would why would Bubba care about that, right? And what in Sam Hill is uh, Pompano? But uh, so I, I looked into Pompano a little bit there. Apparently, they are and, and some Bubba's listening in Florida. We'd love to hear some feedback on this. Uh, really good to eat. They require very little seasoning, and you know, here's the kicker, Ryan. This is what makes them perfect. They basically fit into a pan, the typical size. So you just put like fit right into a pan to cook them up. There so you it's go. Just eat, I mean, like you catch them and throw them, throw them on, throw them in the skillet, and bam, you're eating. Throw them in the skillet, boom, you're eating, and they uh, apparently are some really tasty eating fish out of Florida. Yeah, in the salt water. So hey. If it fits in the in the pan, cook it, right? Yeah, heck yeah. So, and I just threw the one hundred number out there, but I'm reading the article now, and and basically, so the allowable uh ba- the allowable catch limit is one hundred pompano, and officers escorted the vessel back to the Everglades City for further inspection and discovered a total of two thousand seven hundred and eleven pompano on board, weighing just over four thousand pounds. Wow. So yeah, they were uh, they were pretty busy that day. They must have had a big fire. Um, <laughs> no doubt <laughs> you're gonna cook those over the fire for sure right some good tasty pump pump you know and so here's an i, I kind of have another story about this not this in particular so i had a friend i still have a friend he's a friend of mine um oh, that's good yeah which would be a, a good kind of rigs bell would be cool to have him on but at one point in his life uh he was well, he still works in conservation and law, law enforcement conservation. But at one point in his life, he worked for he was undercover for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And he worked out of Virginia. I think I can talk about it now because he's no longer undercover. Uh, but actually, he was so undercover. I saw him one time at the Harrisburg Sports Show. I was <laughs> there at the booth at the Harrisburg Sports Show and I saw him coming down the aisle and it's like, Oh, hey, I'm going to go say hi to my buddy, right? And he saw me coming, and he's like with, uh, I guess, mixed company, if you will. And he's kind of giving me this look and and real quickly shaking his head like, don't, not now, not now. And um, I knew enough of what he did for a living to just turn 90 degrees to the right and act like I didn't even saw him um, or <laughs> see him. Yeah. So – Pretty cool story on how this stuff works, but they were, so he was working undercover and I can't remember Moray. I think it was Moray Eels and I may have to Google that to see if I'm right. But anyway, there's a whole underground network of eel smugglers off of the East coast and they ship them to overseas to Asia. And he actually became, he worked undercover and started this, he was catching eels illegally uh, as an undercover agent and had this whole network of people working for him. And they were arresting the buyers uh, of these eels, these moray eels. I think they were moray eels. Um, anyway, they were out. Let's take or- moray out of it and just call them eels uh, o- over to Asia. And <clears throat> really fascinating stuff. Like he befriended these people, he had a house rented. You know, he had these fish tanks in his basement to keep the keep the animals, the eels alive while, you know, for transport. You know, I mean, and, you know, he was trying to work a day job, too, at the same time. So he was like playing this double lifestyle Um, and all the people that they ended up arresting. Like it was crazy. Like some of them, a couple of them were school teachers. He was telling me that he actually became close with them. They were good. They were like 
it was a, it was a very lucrative business. So they were making a lot of money and it was illegal what they were doing. And even so much so he was so undercover. Um, and I, I may be like, maybe I'm not making any of this up, but I'm maybe getting the details because it's been a few years, but anyway, um, like, so they, they were stealing these eels out of other people's fish nets, right? So at the time, some of his colleagues who did not know that he was undercover were studying the eels. And so they had fish nets and traps out. So they would do their data collecting during the day, right? Well, at nighttime, he and his crew would come steal their eels. So unbeknownst to them, he, whenever he would steal their eels, he would record the data because... He was a biologist by trade and knew how important the data was. And he kept track of it all and not telling anybody until after this whole case was over. And then he was like, hey, by the way, because so what they would do was, and I'm throwing these numbers out there, but let's just say they had this fish trap out and they would pull up to the fish trap in the middle of the night with their boat and they would pull it up. And let's say there was 50 eels in it, right? Well, he and his crew would take 40 of them and leave 10. So when the daytime crew, the legit guys, came to do their data collecting, there'd be ten eels in the trap. Well, they weren't. They weren't. They were only getting a piece of the pie, right? They weren't. They didn't realize there was forty other ones in there that they didn't have any data on. It was going to skew all their their numbers up. So him being, you know, the ethical biologist that he was, he kept track of the data of the forty that he took, and then after the case was all, you know, the smoke had settled or the dust had cleared, however you want to say it. He turned the data over to the state of the eels that he was stealing. That's just, I thought it was funny. Um, but anyway, pretty cool story. And it just shows you how, you know, it kind of parallels this story of there's people out there watching this stuff. And it's a good thing because, you know, we, everything that, you know, that is regulated via U.S. Fish and Wildlife for the state agencies needs to be regulated for a reason. And there's people out there paying attention and watching, and rightfully so. On deck for Bubba, I know at least in specific to Pennsylvania, we got youth uh, opening day of trout season coming up this coming weekend. So maybe we'll have some good good info to go off of that, good stories maybe. Yeah, it's uh, you plan on taking the kids out on uh, the youth Saturday? Yeah, we're heading out, we'll be out there braving the elements. It's uh, going to be spitting snow, um, which is usually part for the course, uh, for youth fishing day. Um, so yeah, the kids are anxious and uh, we'll be ready to go. My wife's not too anxious, but I think she's going to tag along with us. (laughs) Oh, that's great! The whole whole, getting the whole family out there—that'll be nice. I won't be able to take the kids out this this coming Saturday, but we will be going out on the "quote unquote" opening day of trout season in Pennsylvania. We'll be making the trek to Pennsylvania to do that on the April April second, I believe that is first Saturday in April. So, uh, you know, to folks in Western PA, I know even when I when I lived there, it seemed like. Fishing season was over kind of when archery came, archery in the fall, and you didn't do any fishing until trout season. And it was kind of like Fishmas, you know, Fishmas Eve on the night before uh, the opening day of fishing season. But, uh, you know, outside of that, fishing season really do- never does end, at least in uh, some areas. It, it does seem like at Western PA, Ryan, I don't know if you get that feel. Yeah, no, it's where I'm definitely coming from on that. fish camp is a big deal. Um, yeah, you know, for sure. 
we we used to go to a fish camp. A buddy of mine had a camp up in, up north, and we used to go there. And a lot of the guys didn't even bring fishing rods. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like hunting camps, you know. Kind of like hunting camps. Hunting camp, no, no go hunt. bullets, you know. Yeah. I had a real good buddy. Um, he was old, a lot older than me at the time. Like when I was in my early twenties, he was in his mid sixties. He was actually uh, my umpire in baseball, and and he and I just kind of hit it off and. Man, he was funny, big guy, very charismatic. Like he owned a room when he walked into it, and we would go to his fish camp. And he never had a fishing rod. And we went down to the his camp was I don't know, maybe two hundred yards off the stream, and just below his camp was a nice big hole. And uh, you know, it was opening day of trout season one year, and it was just raining and snow. It was nasty out, and uh, we did we decided not to fish until the the weather. I think we we were going. Our plan was to fish the next day. It was just really nasty. But he's like, oh, let's walk down and see what's going on. And there were people everywhere. They had braved the elements. And I still say it to this day. And this was over 20 years ago at this point. But, you know, he's like, I never understood. He's like, I feel like, you know, these they're all, all these guys were standing around this one hole, right? And he was like, they don't know for sure if there's any fish in there. He's like, I feel like they should just put one fish in. And whoever catches it wins, and we all go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I like his approach there. Yeah. <laughs> kind of stuck out to me. But, yeah, fish camp's a big deal, and you hit the nail on the head, man. Like, you fish until hunting season, and then you hunt, right? And then, yeah. you know, fishing season doesn't come back in until, you know, April 1st of April or April 15th. Uh and, you know, I have some Western friends, and I, a few years ago, I took a picture of the trout stream I was standing on at, you know, quarter till eight, because in Pennsylvania, not only is there an opening day of trout season, but it's also, you can't start fishing until 8 a.m. I'm uh, pretty <laughs> yep. sure it's still that way. So it was like 7.45 a.m., and I'm standing on this beautiful stream in, in the Laurel Mountains, and it was literally you know i don't want to say shoulder to shoulder but there were a lot of people on the stream so i took a picture i was you know it was a really cool picture you, you could look down the stream and just see guys standing and i sent it to my buddy who lives in missoula montana and i said today's our day of opening day trout season and he was like you've got to be kidding me that's what you do like, <laughs> yes this is how we do it in the east he was like oh my gosh you know because he had never been east he just had grown up in montana and he's actually a fishing guide um so you know he grew up floating you know all those cool rivers out there and just fly fishing and you know you might go four or five days without seeing another person you know, um, yeah, just, you know, in the back country type of deal. So I think he yeah. closed to Clark fork and uh, a couple of the other ones in and around Missoula there, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, there's some beautiful areas out there, beautiful yeah. areas and completely different experiences, you know, like he and I are really close friends. Even when we talk hunting, um, you know, it's different out there. Montana is such a vast space and, you know, the, the West is so vast, you know, it's just huge and they have a lot of hunters and, you know, but it's, it's sometimes you, you just get away from the people and you go for miles on miles without seeing anybody. I mean, you're just so different, you know, we're looking for that spot and they're looking for an animal over, you know, that amongst, you know, a couple hundred thousand acres, um, just really cool, different experiences for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And even on the fishing scene outside of Western PA, even like Maryland, the Eastern Shore, uh, you know, like I mentioned, fishing never really is 
over season per se. I mean, you had got the shad run, you got a yellow perch run, the white perch, uh, of course, the striper se- uh, fishing season, uh, that whole scene uh, up and down the East Coast is uh, it's just a whole nother culture almost. So, yeah. Yeah. So if any Bubba's out there that got some striper stories out there, especially any of the uh, shore striper fishermen, um, hey, you know, leave a message. It'd be fun to hear about that stuff. I have a cool striper fishing story, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I was up in Maine uh, with a good friend of mine from QDMA, Jeff Ames, and uh, he had a fish camp, a striper fish camp. and It was just outside of Kittery, Maine, or right on the – the uh the main and i'm trying to think of the border right there in the name of the river that separates it but anyway um he had been on me for a few years you got to come up the fish camp you got to come the fish camp you know and showing me pictures these big giant stripers and i'm like okay so i finally go up and you know we we have to go out and catch the bait i remember Mm, and uh You know, so we went in the river and we were jigging for the bait, which we had a really hard time catching him for some reason. He kept swearing to me. He's like, it's not normally like this. Like, okay, whatever. So we managed to catch a few bait fish. And then he had some left over from the weekend before. Now, meanwhile, he goes, I mean, this is his thing, right? Like this is his wheelhouse, you know, big boat, fish camp right on the water. I mean, you know, this is what he does. He puts you up, he takes you fishing. This is his, this is his gig. So <laughs> we go out in the and we're fishing for stripers now and we're not having any luck for whatever the reason and the next thing i know uh the coast guard is chasing us down and we were boarded by the coast guard i have the pictures the 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 coast guard you know their big boat comes they're like these jet boats they come up right next to us this big ginormous boat and board his vessel um and just go from top to bottom man looks looking like nothing major just this is a random check type of deal but they searched everything and this is my first time and he's like swearing to me like this has never happened to me before in my life and so uh the running you ryan it was a little shady you yeah right so the running joke was we go back the, the the coast guard finds everything in working order type of deal no you know no harm no foul have a good day gentlemen and they get on their big boat and they leave and we're left there kind of holding our rods and uh, <laughs> we head back in we never caught a fish not one fish to this day i still sent him a text this was probably uh, seven, eight years ago at this point, I still will text him randomly and, you know, kind of give him the, the raspberries about being the worst red or worst striper guide in, in Kittery, Maine. Um, but <clears throat> we never caught a fish. We had a hard time catching bait fish. And he swore to me that we would, if we didn't catch any fish, which he swore that would not happen, we'd certainly catch fish, that the fallback was his lobster pots. Uh, that were right there in his little bay where we docked the boat. So we go back in and we pull the lobster pots only to find that there was no lobster in the pot. So we had to go dock the boat and shower and change, and he had to go buy me dinner. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So that's my red striper. Or is that red? Not red striper. I'm thinking red jumper. That's my striper fishing. uh, My only time striper fishing story, and it's a funny one to boot, but uh, yeah, we had we had a lot of fun, and there was the drinks were flowing after that, and I've certainly not let him live that down. 
Mr. Uh, nice. Jeff Ames is his name. So I should text him and uh, see how the striper fishing is going. Yeah, that'd be good. I'm sure it's doing much better as long as you weren't out there with him. It was apparently. funny because in his he has a beautiful fish camp, like I said, right on the water. And like the his camp, the walls were adorned with he and his wife and his kids and these giant stripers, you know, like they could barely hold them up type of deal. And <laughs> when I get there the night before, you know, we're fishing, I'm thinking, man, we're going to, man, I'm going to be catching one of those and look at this big one and this and that. And he's showing me pictures and this and that and talking about, you know, how many fish we're going to catch and how well we're going to eat. And, you know, the only thing we caught was almost a citation from the Coast Guard, which he swore had never happened in his life before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you'll have to let me know if he uh invites you back up yeah <laughs> okay that was my striper right. fishing story. there's your striper fishing story at least you didn't catch the potential state record and uh throw it back in right unfortunately like that gentleman in arkansas did but oh well hopefully he did well in the tournament so all right ryan well uh you know here we are episode four you got some, like we said, you got some fishing this weekend. We'll uh, be talking about that. Some trout fishing. Hopefully, it doesn't snow too much there, not too cold, and the family can enjoy it. Uh, yep. You got any uh, final shots for this episode? And no, I don't. I'm excited for what's to come. I think there's going to be some big stuff coming, and uh, hopefully, some people reach out to us. And you know, we like the f- the funny stuff, but we also uh, give us the real stuff too. What you want to hear more of or less of? Uh, what have you, but we're, you know, we aim to please. Yeah, absolutely. And if Bubba from West Virginia wants to call in again and give us a good story there, a good laugh like he did, uh, we can uh, we can certainly uh, put that on again. So thanks uh, for that feedback on the Bubba Hotline. And uh, again, the Bubba Hotline is 812-641-5501. And you can shoot us an email at Bubba at BubbaTheHunter.com. Um, hey, we're on Facebook too. You know, Bubba the Hunter on Facebook. So look us up there. Facebook and Instagram. And Instagram. Yeah. Instagram, uh, Bubba the Hunter podcast. So, yeah. And the Bubba hotline. I mean, it it can't be easier than send a text or a call to the Bubba hotline. Yeah. So that's as easy as it gets. We have all of our avenues of communication covered. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. And we look forward to hearing some good feedback on that. So. All right. All right. There we go. Yeah. See you later, Bubbas.